Welcome, everybody, yet again to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, where it is our job to speak about, you know, different orthopedic topics and, you know, give you the necessary details to understand a topic and maybe even answer some board questions on it. Okay. So I am uh, one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, and we also have Dr. Fitz here on the line, man. Uh, Go ahead and say something, Dr. Fitz. Hey, guys, it's me. Uh, You guys know the show is running well now that I'm here. All right. <laughs> so uh, we're first week of residency. Uh, let's, let's Dr. Dr. Fitz, how's it going for you? Uh, man, uh, first week of residency. Um, so actually, we started a little bit earlier than everybody. So I'm about two weeks in at this point. And, you know, I'm finally getting to the floor to actually see what, what goes on. And uh, it's a lot, man. It's a lot. I will admit it is a lot. L- luckily this year, all, well, at this this month, all of the uh, interns are on the same service. We're all on the orthopedic service. So uh, instead of it only being one or two of us, it's like five of us right now. So yeah. we can spread the work and just to kind of get your feet wet. But it's still a lot. And I'm, I'm kind of getting a little anxiety worried about when, it's, when I'm just, uh, I'm the main guy, how that's going to go. But uh it's good. It's good. You know, all the stuff that I kind of learned during med school, all these rotations, you know, being able to use it firsthand on my own. It's good. How's it going yeah, for you? Great. Man, everything's great. I'm on the trauma service, of course, you know, start off on trauma. That's a good way to start off and, you know, up early and, you know, you're doing work and we first day in the OR, which is actually pretty nice. Um, so, you know, just kind of learning how to put in these orders and manage patients and, but, you know, it's good. It's a good first weekend. I guess we'll kind of see where it goes from here. But uh, on that note, let's go ahead and move into today's episode and move into today's topic. So today's topic is one of the topics that is one of the things that we see all the time. If you're in any orthopedic surgery residency, you will see this undoubtedly. Maybe one of the, the most, uh, one of the things you get consulted on the most. And we have Dr. Brooks Ficke here to speak about it. Now, Dr. Brooks Ficke did his residency at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He also did his fellowship in hand and upper extremity at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And he is now working at Resurgence Orthopedics in Georgia. And uh, so on this episode, he really breaks it down really well, uh, distal radius fractures, what to do, how to look at it, what are some of the important things to look on the x-ray. So, you know, he really does a great job. I really appreciate this and actually listened to this again and even took some more notes on it, guys. So really, you know, pay attention and I hope you enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Ficky, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast and coming and, and speaking, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Great, great. Uh, typically, what we love to do is kind of just start off with some questions, kind of just getting to know you as a person, um, and, and then we kind of just jump into the case from there, and I know today we're going to talk all about distal radius fractures. That, that sounds great. These are common problems that every resident is going to see starting from day one. Yeah. So um, hopefully we get these, get all this under the belt. But uh, so the first question I have for you is, uh, what has your experiences through your orthopedic training taught you about yourself? It's taught me uh, that I need to know my personality and know how my personality affects the way that I practice medicine. 
my personality is fairly cautious and fairly detailed and that translates relatively well into being a hand surgeon uh, but I also need to balance that with occasionally having to be aggressive with the patient and and really make a decision quickly and get to know something and what made you choose hand what made you go into that specialty it's it's the field that I liked I liked seeing the injuries I liked working with the patients uh, I liked like the surgery that's awesome and um, another one we have is do you have a quote that you live your life by and why if you do have a quote many people don't have a quote some do this is from my my grandfather taught it taught it to me I don't know if it comes from anyone or anywhere but if something's worth doing then it's worth doing well and so we always wanted to like try to go in with like a one-liner right so that kind of describes who we are so for example my one-liner might be 24-year-old male, about to be orthopedic surgery intern, love traveling, eating different food, and having fun, or Dr. Fitz maybe. Uh, 27-year-old male, a new doctor, enjoy living life to the fullest and spending time with my family, like doing some extreme sports. Uh, just recently went paragliding and we had a lot of fun. There we go, it's a little bit more than one line, but yeah. Brooks, <laughs> what about yourself, if you had to just have a one-liner about yourself? 33-year-old male, glad to be finally done with training and learning my way through uh, balancing being a new surgeon and having a young family. Awesome. Love it. Love it. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into the topic of the day, distal radius fractures. And we want to kind of just start off with just a simple case and then kind of go from there. So uh, say uh, you have a 48-year-old female comes into the ER and she was walking, she fell on her outstretched hand, and now she complains of wrist pain. You can see some type of obvious deformity. From there, what are the uh, pertinent history and physical exam findings that you want to be on the lookout for? So with every patient, I want to start with just a general uh, medical history, history of what happened, how it happened, uh, and always make sure to check the rest of her, ask her about the rest of her. A wrist fracture it can be a distracting injury and she may not even know that she has another injury. So a quick quick history, quick physical, checking everything before I start to focus my attention on and get distracted by what seems the most relevant, the wrist fracture. Um, I wanna know, as far as history goes, what happened, when it happened, uh, how much pain she's in, what she feels like has changed from before, particularly with regards to sensation or with movement, um, and how her pain is changing over the course of the last several hours, because that can give you an idea as to whether she's having a complication such as compartment syndrome or acute carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, in medical history, you know, I want to know how old she is, what her general health is in preparation for uh, considering whether this might need to go to the OR or not. And I also want to get an idea of whether she has known osteoporosis or has ever been screened for osteoporosis uh, because it is important as orthopedists for us to uh, manage the bone and to encourage screening and management of osteoporosis. Okay, absolutely. That, that all sounds great. I was going to ask, how often do you actually see that the patient comes in having uh, carpal tunnel signs as well with, with this type of injury? Relatively frequently. Um, and, and having some carpal tunnel symptoms is different than having acute carpal tunnel syndrome. In an unreduced fracture, it's relatively common to have some numbness and tingling. 
And what you want to be able to do is get an idea of that so you can have a longitudinal picture of their exam. How bad is their numbness and tingling initially? Does it change after reduction? And, or, uh, and does it worsen or get better over the course of maybe an hour or two? If it's very dense and doesn't improve after reduction, you want to consider an early carpal tunnel release. If it's mild, maybe intermittent, uh, maybe it improves with reduction, it's probably safe to wait on that and observe it over the next 12, 24 hours, see uh, how it changes over the course of time. Okay, and what would your, what would your hand, I guess, physical exam, uh, like what does that look like in a patient that has a distal radius fracture? Like what, are there any anatomical landmarks that you wanna make sure are, are not, not tender or different uh, muscles that you wanna make sure are functioning? What, what does your physical exam of the hand look like? going to start by looking at the skin, make sure there's no lacerations, make sure this isn't an open fracture in any way because those can happen with distal radius fractures. Then move on to, and also while I'm looking at the skin, I'll observe their deformity and look at which way they are deformed because that will give, give me a hint as to what to expect on the x-ray. Then I'll move on to palpation, see where they're tender. They're obviously going to be tender over the distal radius. I also want to know if they're tender over the ulnar styloid, if they're tender anywhere out in the metacarpals, and if they're tender up at the elbow. It's possible to have an elbow injury in addition to a distal radius fracture. After that, I start my uh, neurovascular exam, examine the distributions of all three nerves that supply the hand. Uh, the one that is most often affected in distal radius fractures, of course, is the median nerve, as we talked about with the potential for carpal tunnel syndrome. Right. Uh, but you can see other things. And then examining the uh, tendon function in the hand. Particularly, you want to pay attention to the uh, tendon function in the thumb with EPL and FPL, because uh, particularly EPL is the tendon that's most associated with a spontaneous rupture after a distal radius fracture, and so you want to know that it was intact beforehand. But especially in, tendon, in fractures that are high energy, that might be open, you need to have a complete exam of uh, all of the tendons in the hand. Okay. And uh, I just had a quick question. So when we do examine our, our EPL, is I'm guessing it's going to be less commonly seen when you have apex volar versus apex dorsal, like the the uh, laceration or, or the the tendon may not function, I guess, more. Yeah, the, the rupture. Um, it's actually most commonly seen with a non-displaced distal radius fracture. And the thought is that there may be some sort of ischemic injury that uh, is related to the sheath around the EPL remaining intact because it hasn't been torn by the displacement, but there being some bleeding into that sheath due to the fracture. Um, as far as volar versus dorsal displacement, I'm not aware of any data as to which one is more common for EPL rupture. Okay. So so you had this patient here, you've done your physical exam, and and you have a suspicion for some type of fracture because it's an obvious deformity, what radiographs are you going to order and then what are you going to be looking for on the different radiographs? Mm -hmm. So depending on my exam, I, I definitely want a wrist x-ray if um, and then depending on my exam I'll order other x-rays if indicated, you know, full forearm, elbow, depending on what hurts, where she hurts. Um, for my wrist x-rays, I want three views, a true PA view, and it's important to recognize how to tell if something's a true PA view based on the look of the ulnar styloid. Um, a 
an oblique view and a 10 degree lateral. And a 10 degree lateral is different than a traditional lateral of the wrist. Um, when the x-ray is taken, instead of the wrist just laying on the plate, it's elevated up about 10 degrees off the plate. And this gives you a better view of the lunate facet. This is also the best way to tell whether she has dorsal tilt, volar tilt, to just to tell the alignment on the lateral view. It helps get the radial styloid shadow out of the way and profiles that lunate facet really well. So really quick, just to kind of go over that one more time, just to, just to be clear. So uh, one of the things we're going to look for is a PA view of the wrist, right? Mm-hmm. A true P- How do you know something is a true PA? Like what are... What are some of the like, things you're looking for? With a true PA, you're looking at the profile of the ulnar styloid. There should be no other bone from the ulnar head um, overlapping the ulnar styloid. It should be on the ulnar side of the bone. It should be a straight line from the shaft up to the uh, tip of the ulnar styloid. On the radial side of the ulna, uh, it should have a slight curve to it. Uh, when it's a true PA. When it's a supinated view, that tends to be a a much straighter appearance to the uh, radial side of the ulnar shaft. Okay. So we have the true PA, then we have the 10-degree lateral. True PA and oblique. Um, And the oblique view can help you whenever you're uncertain of exactly where a a fracture fragment might be on the other views. It can help you Give you, give you a hint, something in between the, the two main views. And then the 10 degree lateral. And that 10 degree lateral, like I said, a little bit different than the true lateral that uh, is commonly obtained because the arm is elevated up and that lets you profile the lunate facet. Okay. And so once we, once we get these, uh, these different, different images, which ones are you going to see the best? Because, you know, the thing that we all see on orthobos, like the radial inclination, length, the ulnar variance, all that. So what view are we going to see those the best at? And then what are we looking for on those different on those different views? Yeah, so on the PA view, you're going to be looking at your uh, radial length, your ulnar variance, your radial height and inclination. Um, and typically, uh, the average person is uh, ulnar neutral or maybe one mi- millimeter ulnar negative. Uh, and when you're looking at your radial length and your ulnar variance, you want to take the midpoint of the distal radius, which is kind of what you would see as an average between the uh, volar and ulnar corners of the ulnar border of the radius, and take your horizontal line from there and then measure up or down to the head of the ulna. So that's how you tell your ulnar variance. Your radial height is going to be from that that same line going up to the radial styloid and looking at that distance. That is typically about 15 millimeters. Um, You can accept about five millimeters of loss of radial height. Some people might say a little less. And then your radial inclination using that same line you'll make an angle from the ulnar corner of the distal radius up to the tip of the radial styloid. And that angle is the radial inclination, which uh, normal is about 23 degrees. Okay, that's great, because I I know sometimes these lines are very, um, I don't know, it's just kind of difficult to understand how to draw these lines out to get the correct uh, readings on the x-ray. Absolutely. Um, before we, before we leave the topic, I forgot to mention looking at the 10 degree lateral because that's where you find your volar or dorsal tilt. And this one is uh, 
often considered to be kind of the most important one to evaluate and, and really base treatments off of. So looking at the 10 degree lateral, you draw a line down the shaft of the, uh, down the shaft of the radius, and you draw a line connecting the volar and dorsal lips of the lunate facet of the distal radius. Normal is about 10 to 11 degrees of volar tilt. The, in a Collies type fracture, your typical low energy, fall on outstretched hand distal radius fracture, that slight volar tilt turns into a dorsal tilt. That's the classic deformity. And our acceptable deformity is somewhere in the range of five to 10 degrees of dorsal tilt. Or if you uh, are concerned that the anatomy may not be normal, you could compare it to the contralateral side and want the tilt to be within 20 degrees of the contralateral side. So, so just to recap that, for, um, just for maybe people that may be listening to this while they're driving, if we're, if we're looking at the distal end of the radio where you have the, the scaphoid facet and then the, the lunate facet, mm-hmm. right? We are, what, what, where are we putting those lines at? Like where are we getting those lines from again? So on the lateral view, you're drawing a line straight down the shaft um, and I guess technically the angle is, at a line, is compared with a line perpendicular to that. And then you're drawing a line from the volar volar lip of the lunate facet to the dorsal lip of the lunate facet and the angle of that line with the perpendicular line to the shaft of the radius is your angle okay yeah, that definitely help help clears that up i, I also want to know uh this is more so i mean maybe in your practice or definitely for the resident uh how often are you getting that extra fam of the contralateral hand relatively rarely okay. uh, usually this I might get it in a more high energy trauma uh, one that um, is very comedied where I kind of want a picture of the good arm to template off of as I rebuild this um, something that might have a metaphyseal or diaphyseal extension um, or that might have some some missing bone okay and and this is going to be a little bit different than our other uh, some of our other podcasts, but since you see this so often in the emergency room, I was just going to ask if you could kind of give a rundown of what the resident should do mm-hmm. uh, as far as in the ER, right at that moment when this patient comes in, you've seen the, the uh, radiographs, and now what's next? So you know, you've, you've done your initial physical exam, you've checked out the patient elsewhere, you know, we're, we're talking about a low energy fall, not a high energy trauma patient who's in the trauma bay and has other things going on that you have to worry about. So you want to have a discussion with the, with the patient about uh, health, goals of treatment, and the next steps. For this patient, assuming she has a, uh, a dorsally displaced distal radius fracture, I'm going to want a reduction in the ER. Depending on what the uh, common practice is at, the, at your institution and what equipment is available, you can go various directions with this. Commonly, ERs have finger traps available, which can be really helpful for uh, helping you maintain length, uh, avoiding the problem of having uh, not enough knowledgeable hands to help you hold a reduction and put a splint on. Uh, the finger traps can simplify that process. 
typically I do a distal radius reduction under a hematoma block. Um, sometimes I'll have the uh, ED give them some pain medications to help with some of the breakthrough pain or if they're having a lot of anxiety to help them be able to tolerate the reduction. But in an acute setting, a hematoma block is very effective at providing uh, analgesia and, and allowing you to do a reduction. To do a hematoma block, assuming they have no allergies, I get about 10 cc's of 1% lidocaine. I palpate the wrist on the dorsal side uh, to identify where the fracture is because the goal is to get the needle into the fracture site and into that hematoma. If I can get the needle there and deliver the lidocaine there, it will spread throughout the fracture site, throughout the wrist, and anesthetize everything, not just the uh, injection site. So I prep with uh, sterile prep beta-dinochlorhexidine because this is introducing a foreign body into a fracture and then inject my lidocaine. As I pass the needle in, I can uh, aspirate just a little bit. I know that there's no major arteries on the dorsum of the wrist, so I'm not aspirating an artery. What I'm looking for is to that flash of blood that indicates that I'm, I'm in the hematoma cavity, and then I inject my lidocaine. Typically, it does take five or 10 minutes after this injection for it to take effect, so that's a good chance for you to go and get the rest of your supplies for your splint. Going on, then the classic, uh, classic uh, distal radius reduction uh, described by um, described in the 1950s is exaggeration of the deformity. So you're going to hyperextend them to unlock the fracture and then use traction and uh, uh, volar tilt or flexion to put the distal radius back on top of the radial shaft where it belongs. Then you can lock it in with pronation and hold that while you apply a, sh a well padded sugar tongue splint. That was awesome. I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a few people coming back to that from time to time. Just to just to recap, that was that was really good. Um, so next, I mean that's that's great. So now we got the we have the patient. You know we have them stable for now. Uh, we're about to go talk to our attending. Uh, how do we go about as well? In your opinion, what is the best type of way to classify these types of fractures? So before we move on, I'll just mention that after I do a reduction, I want to get a post-reduction physical exam, make sure if they were having any median nerve symptoms, if there's been any changes, and make sure that their vascular status in their fingers isn't changed. So then moving on, I want to get post-reduction x-rays in comparison of those with the pre-reduction x-rays will also give me more information as to uh, what we're looking at. As far as classification systems for distal radius fractures, there are four or five major classification systems. Um, it's important to be familiar with them, particularly with the eponyms, because the eponyms for distal radius fractures are so ingrained into orthopedics and into family practice and emergency medicine that I don't think we're ever going to escape them. Uh, however, I, I don't really have a preference for one of the, for one uh, classification system in particular. Sometimes it's useful to use the eponym. Sometimes it's useful to describe the mechanism by which the fracture happened. Sometimes it's useful just to do a purely anatomic description of what the different fragments are and, uh, and which way they're displaced. Uh, so there, it's, it's important here to be familiar with 
all of the classification systems because none of them is totally comprehensive and none of them uh, completely guides treatment. Okay. And uh, I, I did have a quick question when, when you were talking about the post-production films that I, I wanted to quickly touch on. For that, again, since we, since we already mentioned beforehand when we had our pre-production films that the most important one was the dorsal palmar tilt, in post-production, again, is that the same thing that we're looking at and we want to make sure that that is that's back to normal? Post-production films, we're looking at the, uh, the same indicators that we're looking at uh, for pre-production. We're, we're looking at the dorsal tilt, we're looking at the radial height, the radial inclination, and the ulnar variance. Now, how often, so, we, you know, we have a patient, we did their films, and, you know, there's all these different types of dislocated fractures. How often do you see, like, these fractures, such as, like, the chauffeur's fracture, the Barton's fracture, or, you know, the Smith calls, you know, everything we kind of just spoke about? And, like, how often do you see those, and can you kind of explain some of what some of those fractures are? Yeah. Yeah, so, like I said, the eponyms are really important to understand because it's, it's the shorthand way that people communicate, and especially also that sometimes the ER will communicate with you when, when they call you up and say, hey, I've got a Collie's fracture, and you need to know what that is. So a Collie's fracture, um, described by Collie's way back in, I think, 1814, uh, though described by some French gentlemen uh, 50 years before that. History uh, lesson. I know. <laughs> uh, it's important to know your history. Right. Um, uh, so this is your classic uh, dorsally displaced extraarticular distal radius fracture. And that's really the, the case example that we're talking about today. The Smith's fracture is typically a uh, thought of as a volarly displaced extraarticular distal radius fracture, so kind of the opposite of the Collies, and it's less common than the Collies. When you, when you say displaced, do you mean like angulate, like dorsal angulation, or do you mean like? Yeah, typically it, it's uh, the angulation, uh, though it can also refer to translation. Okay. Um, the Barton's variants are shear fractures that involve a. Uh, a shear, a coronal plane shear through the articular surface, and they can be either volar or dorsal. So you have your volar Bartons and your dorsal Bartons. Um, the volar Bartons shear fracture is um, sometimes described as a fracture of necessity because uh, it's necessary to fix it. These <laughs> predictably uh, sh- continue to shear as the, over the course of the first couple of weeks. Uh, being treated, if they are, um, if if you try to treat it in a splint or a cast, and that's because the muscular forces of the arm just continuously pull against that sheared off fragment and uh, pull it pull it down and out of position. Chauffeur's fracture, is radial styloid fracture, um, uh, that name dates from the 1930s or so, and, and uh, with actually cranking an engine to get the car to start. Um, It's a fracture just through the radial styloid, typically emerges around the area of the scaphalunate ligament. And in our traumatic injuries here, that can be a hint that you need to carefully evaluate the scaphalunate interval and look for any widening there. Uh, Because if there's widening or gross instability of the scaphalunate ligament, that might be an indication to get an MRI or do some further evaluation of that in preparation for potentially repairing the scaphalunate ligament. Are there there any fractures where you definitely should almost always get like a CT scan or an MRI? There's none that I do it every time on. 
for a very comminuted intraarticular fracture, I'm more likely to get a CT scan. I will almost never get a CT scan or MRI for your basic collies, basic Smiths. Um, most of the time I can evaluate a volar or dorsal Bartons purely off of the x-rays. But for your multifragmentary uh, intraarticular distal radius fractures with a, uh, with a central die punch uh, piece, yeah, a CT scan can be useful. Okay. And can, can we go ahead and get into some of the treatment uh, options for these types of uh, fractures as well? Absolutely. So the um, most basic type of treatment is going to be uh, your closed reduction and splinting. For a displaced fracture, uh, for a non-displaced fracture, obviously there's no closed reduction. It's just the splinting. In the ER setting, I like to do a sugar tong splint. And just as a personal preference, I like plaster over fiberglass for uh, and for holding an acute reduction. I think it's easier to work with and easier to get a good mold on, um, but that's a, a personal preference. Um, at a, the one to two week mark, I'll usually convert these sugar tongs to a uh, short arm cast, depending on swelling, depending on whether there was a reduction por- performed or not, depending on how the x-rays are looking. So that's the, the heart of non-operative management. And non-operative management is really very effective at treating these fractures whenever they meet the radiographic parameters and whenever the uh, whenever it's a good patient for it. There's a lot of controversy over what to do with the elderly patients who um, who have a little bit of displacement they may not quite meet uh, meet parameters and that's uh, not something that I would expect to be decided at a junior resident level. Um, but just to understand that in elderly patients or patients over 65, the outcome studies comparing open reduction internal fixation or pinning versus non-operative treatment in a cast don't show major benefits outside of uh, potentially increased grip strength at around the one-year mark. Other options for treatment, uh, starting to get into surgical options, we have uh, closed reduction and pinning, so percutaneous pinning. So using K-wires is a, a classic way of, of treating these fractures. It has been done for years. It's very effective. Um, and really studies don't show a great benefit to uh, open reduction internal fixation uh, with volar plates as compared to uh, percutaneous pinning. In some of these extra-articular fractures that have an intact volar cortex and can be well reduced and then held by a pin. The exact pin placement you're going to use in the uh, OR can vary, but typically you'll have a pin coming through the radial styloid and across the fracture, and then also typically a uh, pin from dorsal. And this dorsal pin may be a capanji or an intrafocal pin, and that pin is placed into the fracture site from dorsal and then you use it to lever the fracture up to help you reduce the fracture and then drive it through the, vo- the volar cortex. With those two pins, you can typically hold a distal radius fracture in a splint and get it to heal. Um, and patients do very well with that kind of treatment in appropriate fractures. Okay, and I know we spoke about 
uh, some of the things that you would see on the x-ray such as radial length and dorsal angulation and tilt that can kind of lead you to more so uh, doing operative management uh, for these patients are there any other indications that you uh, you could tell us about that could lead to lead you more so towards doing op- doing the operative treatment versus not up um, typically it's in in the medically and age appropriate patient uh, typically it's mostly the radiographic parameters now if someone comes in and has acute carpal tunnel syndrome um, if I am releasing their carpal tunnel I'm probably going to do something to stabilize the distal radius and whether that's pins or an external fixator or a volar plate uh, can vary based on patient to patient based on uh, fracture parameters but uh, if I'm releasing an acute carpal tunnel syndrome I'm, I'm probably going to stabilize the fracture uh, while I'm in the OR. Um, other than that I don't think there's much outside of the radiographic parameters that, that pushes me towards surgery. Okay and the radiographic parameters again we're looking at the we're looking at the um, dorsal angulation we're looking at the the radial length we're looking at the Ra- radial inclination radial height and the ulnar variance Right. Along with that dor- volar or dorsal tilt. So I guess my question is, which ones, which, uh, what patients would you use like plate fixation versus would you use percutaneous pinning versus like using external fixation or so? Hey, if I had the perfect answer for that question, <laughs> then uh, I'd have a lot of papers published in my yeah. name. Um, there, there have been maybe dozens of papers, even directly comparing those with uh, with randomized controlled trials, um, and. Like I was saying earlier, uh, there's not a lot of really strong evidence in the long term, over one to two years, that any of these treatments are significantly better than the others, as long as you're successfully able to restore anatomy and keep the patient moving, uh, and particularly keep the patient's fingers moving. We don't want to have finger stiffness just because we have a wrist problem. Okay. Percutaneous pinning, external fixation, uh, volar or dorsal fixation, there's there's roles for all of those in the treatment of distal radius fractures, and some of that is going to be fracture-specific, uh, some of it is going to be surgeon preference, some of it uh, will be based on patient factors, like if they have open wounds uh, that's or, or uh, soft tissue compromise, that can dramatically change what you're going to do to manage the fracture. Okay. And so we've gotten that down. We decided we're going to go ahead and operate on this patient. Can we can we quickly go over the different approaches that we'll take and kind of what we'll be cutting through, et cetera, for Ab- the distal radius? Absolutely. Um, so with percutaneous pinning, um, you're going to do the same close reduction that you would have done in the ER. And then you're going to try to find a percutaneous route to safe, safely put those pins through the skin while avoiding nerves and tendons and uh, arteries though typically you're not trying to put a pin through the radial artery. Um, There have been studies in cadavers that show that there is no truly safe route percutaneously into the distal radius and that's one of the reasons that a lot of people have moved away from uh, percutaneous pinning is that they feel like it uh, damages tendons and it's prone to infection at the pin sites. Moving on to our uh, typical open approaches. Uh, Most fractures uh, currently are treated with a volar plate and a volar approach. Dorsal dorsal approach or dorsal plating uh, 
is associated with tendon irritation and tendon ruptures, uh, though, of course, volar plating can be also. Um, but the volar approach is the standard for um, most fracture fixation at this time. There's two main workhorse volar approaches to the distal radius, the volar Henry and the trans FCR, so that's going uh, through the flexor carpi radialis sheath. That's my preferred approach. The volar Henry uh, goes in the interval between the flexor carpi radialis and the radial artery. Um, it's nice because it's extensile if you have a fracture that uh, goes uh, into the radial diaphysis or if you're trying, trying to uh, treat two separate fractures, a distal radius fracture and a uh, radial shaft fracture in the distal part of the shaft um, where you would be using the same one long plate to treat both fractures, it's nice to have an extensile approach and the volar Henry is that. So for a trans-FCR approach, you're making your incision longitudinally over the FCR tendon, which is typically visible or palpable in the wrist, uh, you, starting from the wrist crease distally and moving proximally for a, a distance of uh, four to seven centimeters, probably, depending on plate size, you know, fracture, exactly what you're going to be doing. I try to avoid crossing the wrist crease in a straight straight line, just like with all hand surgery, avoid crossing uh, creases in straight lines. And so if uh, later in the surgery I feel like I don't have enough distal exposure, I'm really struggling to get soft tissues out of the way, I can extend that with a five millimeter diagonal incision uh, along the course of the ray of the thumb or uh, over the thenar eminence. And that lets me get a little more soft tissue laxity should I need it. After I make my skin incision, I use scissors to bluntly dissect through the soft tissues. I use bipolar cautery to uh, cauterize any crossing veins. It's important to know that the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve can cross over the FCR sheath. It can pass through the FCR sheath or it can pass under the FCR sheath. There's a lot of variability here, so you have to have a um, take a lot of caution during this approach just to make sure that you're not uh, cutting that nerve because that can lead to um, pain in the thenar eminence and lack of sensation of in the thenar eminence if that nerve is cut. Once I have the tissues over the sheath completely cleared, I make a uh, longitudinal incision uh, in the volar part of the FCR sheath I take a blunt wheat lantern retractor and sweep the FCR out of the way and then make a sharp incision through the uh, dorsal aspect of the FCR sheath. And that takes me uh, deeper into the wrist. The next layer down is going to be the flexor pollicis longus. And in this region, it's kind of the musculotendinous junction of that uh, muscle. I use my finger to sweep it out of the way ulnarly uh, and then identify the pronator quadratus. And the pronator uh, lays directly on the uh, surface of the distal radius volarly. It's commonly torn uh, depending on the uh, level of energy of these fractures. Um, but I identify it, and if it's intact, I release it distally at the red-white border so you can actually see a, a difference between the muscle belly and the tendons and wrist capsule, or not the ligaments and wrist capsule more distally. So distally I release along the red-white border, taking care with my knife not to go ulnarly, not to 
cut anything that I can't directly see because I don't want to get the median nerve. And then along the radial border, I also release the pronator, uh, taking care, obviously, because the radial artery is in this area. While I'm there working on the radial border, I typically release the brachioradialis off of the radial styloid because that's a major deforming force that can make your reduction uh, much more difficult. After I've released the pronator, I elevate it up gently off the uh, distal radius. I personally try to preserve the pronator as a, a distinct sheath, a, a distinct piece of tissue that would be repairable at the end. Technically, um, some studies have shown that there's no difference in uh, wrist strength in pronation or supination uh, with repair of the pronator, and that there is no difference in rates of tendon rupture uh, with repair of the pronator. Um, so, technically, if it can't be repaired, there's not thought to be a uh, you know, any harm to the patient from that situation. But if it's repairable, I try to repair it. Uh, just as a, a matter of restoring anatomy. After I've got the pronator elevated off the volar surface of the distal radius, I can typically identify my fracture line. In this patient that we're talking about today, a typical Collie's fracture, this is going to be a transverse fracture line uh, somewhere in the range of one centimeter proximal to the articular surface. I want to be careful not to uh, get into the joint space itself, not to take a knife in there. There's important um, volar ligaments that are important to the stability of the wrist. And also I think that uh, it contributes to postoperative stiffness if you violate the wrist capsule. Uh, so I try to avoid doing that. I like to use a, a small straight osteotome to open up the fracture site. If it's really fresh, one or two days, you may not need to do this. Oftentimes these end up coming to clinic and then being done at seven to 12 days postoperatively. And so there, when there's been a little bit of healing, a little bit of hematoma and callus formation, you may need to gently use an osteotome to open the fracture up. After this, I perform my closed reduction maneuver. And here it, it starts to get into a, person, a matter of personal preference as to uh, how you do your plating, whether you put in the proximal or distal screws first, whether you use a, a uh, K-wire to hold the reduction while you work. That's all a, a kind of a matter of personal preference and is also somewhat dictated by the exact pattern of the fracture and how good of a closed reduction you get. Okay, I think that was an absolutely awesome explanation. Uh, I feel like I can go and do the surgery right now to listen to that. I'll hand you a knife. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, we went a little bit longer than we usually do, but with this being so common of an injury and that you see all the time, I, I'm pretty sure the listeners will really enjoy this talk. I think it was great all around. Uh, but before we go, Dr. Fiki, what is a good way for our listeners to be able to reach you if they wanted to contact you? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm happy to uh, speak with anyone from the podcast who, who wants to reach out to me or has any questions. Uh, my email address is fickybw at resurgence.com. That's F-I-C-K-E-B-W at R-E-S-U-R-G-E-N-S dot -E -E com. All right. Well, that's perfect. Thank you, Dr. Fiki, for coming and uh, speaking with us. And uh, have a good day, everyone. Thank you all for listening to that episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it just as much as we loved making it. Now, 
If you enjoy that, I need you to do one thing. I need you to just go to iTunes and leave a review or Stitcher, however you listen to this, okay? And, you know, we'd love to get your feedback. Um, We really hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Figgy. He did a great job breaking things down. I took notes again while rereading this. And, you know, if you want to stay updated with the new up-to-date, you know, or maybe even exclusive, perhaps, things from Nailed It Ortho, go to nailedithortho.com. And join the newsletter. We may send you things before they're out to everybody else. So, without further ado, thank you all for listening. Go ahead and listen to the next episode.